Hello and welcome, Nationals fans, to the Dogcast, the podcast that wishes it could troll Phillies fans like the MLB The Show Twitter account. I'm your host, Blake Finney, and I'm not sure I want to upset our guest tonight based on what we've recently learnt she can deadlift. Today, we're joined by the Athletics' fairly new Nats beat writer, Brittany Giroli. How are you doing, Brittany? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I think we're, we talked about it before, and we're hiding from the cold like most of America is at the moment. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is freezing, although I did look at the weather and it's negative 10 in Detroit, so can't complain too much that it's uh, 12 degrees here. Yeah, I, I'm still figuring out Celsius to Fahrenheit, but uh, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> very, very yeah, cold. Yeah, it's probably about as hot as the hot stove at the moment, but the Nationals have still been quite busy. We've got quite a bit to get to, so since the last time we were with you when we had Jamal Collier on, the Nats have continued to have their busy off-season, so... Uh, the first move since then, we're kind of looking at two for the price of one on the starting pitch in front. Uh, Mike Rizzo's probably given you trust issues already, Brittany, after saying nothing was imminent two hours before he traded Tanner Roark to the Cincinnati Reds. And um, I know it was a bit later, but then they signed Anibal Sanchez to a two-year, $19 million deal with a $12 million team option. It, from the outside, it seemed a bit strange because when they traded Roark, you either thought, right, they're going to get someone clearly better for the same money or someone about the same for less money. So is that kind of what you made of it as well? Yes, that's definitely what we thought. And also, um, it seems like if they were going to trade Rourke, that they had something in the offing. And then you're all kind of waving around, you know, like a reporter's life. You're on pins and needles, refreshing Twitter, scared to go to bed because we're still at the winter meetings. And then nothing happened. So, you know, then the next day comes and nothing happened. So it was at the time, strange, um, I would assume that they felt fairly confident that they would sign someone quickly, but it was it, it was still weird the way it transpired, like you said. Rizzo said nothing was in the offing, and then bam, something happens, and it looks like, well, something must be, you know, to answer that trade, they, they must have something immediate, and they didn't. So it's a very bizarre series of events. Yeah, like you say, I was there like pretty much the next couple of days expecting something to come through. And I think Sanchez was about two weeks later, which, um, yeah. But I think for for me, it it's strange where you're going from a reliable pitcher in Roark. I know he had a down 2018, but he's never been on the DL in his career. And he kind of fitted in as that number four. And you've got a Gambwin Sanchez who could could pay off, but he could also regress back to what we saw before. Right. And, you know, it's going to come down to kind of the, the pitch selection with Sanchez. This is a guy who's got a lot of pitches, so they feel like he's going to age well. Um, I know there were some concerns with Rourke, and we and we talked about, you know, kind of the durability with him. But, um, honestly, it didn't live up to what they thought he was going to be. I think what probably ended up happening was they had some trade interest in him. No one's really giving him anything um, because he's owed, you know, a decent amount of money now in arbitration. Um, because I believe it was close to $10 million. And then I think Cincinnati kind of stepped forward and said, hey, we'll give you this guy, you know, AAA pitcher, nothing special. But um, I think that the Nationals saw the opportunity to move him to save some money by deferring with Sanchez and kind of jumped. But um, Sanchez is interesting to me. Like you said, I could see it going both ways. Um, I could see him 
kind of being continuing that renaissance that he had last year. And, you know, I could also see him, him very early durability has been a question. If you look at those innings pitched, I can see, you know, him getting injured or him just kind of running out of gas because there's a lot of miles on that arm. Now, the good thing is he's crafty. He's a veteran. He talked to scouts and, and, and he really quote, knows how to pitch. You know, he's, he's, he's evolved, which is necessary when you reach a certain point in your career at this level. Um, but to me, it's one of the most interesting um, and one of the most important uh, signings of the offseason because you know what you're going to get from that top half of that rotation, pretty much, you know, barring massive injury. Uh, you're not really sure what you're going to get against Sanchez, but if he's that guy again, he's a very strong number four starter. Yeah, it's exactly that. And, and it was one of the areas that Mike Rizzo specifically pinpointed. So to take that much of a gamble, if he was, I think at the time when the signing was made, it was the kind of signing that I thought he would be great as a number five. You can take that risk there, but at number four, to me, I would have rather kept Roark. I think it, it's like half a million more. Um, I think he got 10 million in arbitration from the Reds and kind of you've seen what he can do for like four out of his six seasons where he's been a reliable starter and he'll always keep you in games usually. Right. I agree. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen too much of him up close. I've seen Sanchez probably a bit more, but, um, you know, they were able to defer some of that money. So again, I think that it, it might've come down to a couple million here with a payroll issue. And then also it just shows that they didn't really have any faith that, that Rourke was going to turn it around and kind of be that guy. So, I mean, they obviously know their pitchers a little bit better than I do or than a casual fan does. I don't know if it was just makeup or some kind of mechanical flaw or, or something of the sort, but it just seems like they felt like they could get an upgrade and they felt like they did get an upgrade, even though Sanchez is older, not as durable, and is certainly a wild card. Yeah, like you say, it's them knowing their pitchers. Like when um, like they shocked everyone when they traded Giolito thinking that he wasn't the pitcher that everyone else thought he was and it's kind of going down that route it, yeah it's uh it's interesting and I guess the front office they're going to know more than most people what they're doing they're obviously confident in Sanchez and have done their their research behind it yeah it's interesting and then kind of as a side note but it's interesting what the the Reds are doing here I'd be curious to see kind of how that ends up panning out for them it's in it's in such a slow off season. And then you look at some of these teams that are uh, kind of making moves uh, and the Reds didn't really look like they were going to be a team that would be interested in a guy like Tanner Rourke, but you know, ultimately they were, and, and they've made a bunch of, of interesting moves here this winter. And um, to me, just from afar, I'm fascinated to see how he does and on a larger scale, how that Reds team ends up faring, you know, coming off obviously a, a couple of pretty bad seasons. Yeah, it's strange that a team trying to win these days. Really, it really is. <laughs> uh, so after the Roark trade, it was in between the two moves. The Nationals brought back Matt Adams on a one-year, $3 million deal with a mutual 2020 option. Last year with the Nationals, he hit 257 with 18 home runs, 48 RBI, and an OPS near 850. And it filled a very specific need. It was one that everyone seemed to agree that they needed. They needed a left-handed compliment to Ryan Zimmerman obviously swinging it well but health is an issue there do you agree that this was pretty much a perfect signing for the Nationals for that need yeah and you know the nice thing is he's been around the team he was with them last year and you know from from talking to him it sounds like 
when they, you know, agreed to deal him last year, there was always kind of that, we'd like to bring you back if we can, if it makes sense. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, credit Rizzo and the city of D.C. and his fan base for being a place that, you know, he wanted to come back to. And I think it's certainly, if him and Zimmerman can both stay healthy, gives them a real nice platoon at first base and a chance for you know, Davey Martinez to play matchups a little bit. And, you know, certainly with the addition of, of Dozier at second base, um, they can have a little more flexibility at a first base spot, maybe a late bat off the bench. Um, you know, it really, I think, was kind of a, a no-brainer type of move for them to make. I mean, it's a, it's a move that doesn't exactly, you know, move the needle, right? It doesn't make these huge headlines. But it's something that certainly uh, could pay dividends and, and could be the difference in, in winning or losing a couple games. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned the platoon. Kind of some of the debate, and I think I wrote an article about it a couple of days, is how are they going to divide the playing time there? Because I still think that Zimmerman is probably the superior here, but we've, we saw last season Adams raked against right-handers. Do you think it's going to be down the middle or kind of Zimmerman getting four starts a week, Adams getting three? I think Zimmerman probably has the edge, but I think he has to stay healthy. Um, you know, it's an important year for him. You know, he wants to stay um, in D.C. He wants to be a national for life. And you know, these are things that can certainly happen, but he's got to do his part. He's got to stay healthy and productive. And, you know, if that's not the case, then, you know, you could start to see that percentage slide more and more. Uh, but I think where it stands right now, I would agree with you. I think you know, Zimmerman's probably that primary first base. But, again, it's always good to have some better options. Yeah, and I think probably it also helps that Adams is a, a really good pinch hitter, which, again, we saw last season. And having that lefty option on the bench, which I don't really have much of. The rest of the bench is made up of right-handers and switches mainly, I think. Right, right. And, you know, their bench has certainly um, gotten stronger, I think, in the offseason. It's not something you talk about, right? Cause people don't get super excited about the bench. Uh, but the move with Dozier that puts Kendrick and Defoe, also on the bench. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, it just strengthens everything. Um, and I think if you, you look at the bench, you look at good teams, and it's because they have strong benches. I mean, nobody starts and ends with that same 25-man roster. You know, baseball is a game of depth, and that's something that, again, people don't get excited about, but you really need to stop and look at and say, are we okay with our second option? Are we okay with our third option? Um, and that's something the Nationals have done by making these additions is they've pushed these quote-unquote regulars or guys who are penciled in um, down the depth chart, which makes them a stronger team. Yeah, absolutely. Where you've got you've got starting fringe starting caliber players in Matt Adams, Harry Kendrick, even Michael Taylor there. They would start on some teams, and that's kind of exactly where you want to be if you're, you're the Nationals, like you say. It's just perhaps getting that third option where they didn't necessarily come through last season. They had Moises Sierra in right field, which still gives me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then that's really the hallmark of a good team, right, is, is you know pitching and defense and depth, and that depth's going to be tested. Um, and for me, I think if there's moves to be made left for the Nats, it's going to have to be adding some starting pitching depth because we talked about how good their rotation is, but uh, a couple injuries and what do they have at triple A? I mean, they don't really have too many pitching prospects that you're, you're excited about that are kind of banging down the door. Um, certainly that's an area I think of concern. Yeah, definitely. Um, and on the perfect edition front, the last signing that we're going to go over most recently, they signed Brian Dozier to a one year, $9 million deal earlier this month, kind of a, 
another perfect storm for the Nationals where they've got a really high-caliber player. Well, slightly different from Adam's situation, but a high-caliber player coming off a down year who wants a one-year deal to well, a one-year deal with a contender. I think that was one thing he emphasized on the the conference call with the reporters, and it's it bridges the gap to Kibun, which is what they were looking for by the looks of it, rather than a, a multi-year option like LeMahieu or, or Lowry. Right. And, you know, you look at some of the money out there, like LeMahieu, and you're like, well, could they have gotten him for that? And uh, I think it shows more than anything how much they like Carter Fiboum and the fact that he's kind of knocking down the door here uh, in the majors. And certainly we've known for a while that his back can play. Now they've kind of tipped their hand as to what they want to do with him playing second base uh, last year in the fall league. And it's going to be good for him to not be rushed, to have a legitimate option. I think if they didn't get Dozier and they ended up missing out and just went with kind of that Defoe-Kendrick split, uh, there might be a scenario where they kind of rushed him and his progress up from the minors. So what this does is it gives you a good clubhouse guy, good character guy, a guy, like you said, coming off a down year, trying to reestablish his market value. And, you know, he kind of traces a lot of his issues back to that bone bruise in his knee. He said he had bad mechanics. Um, If you go back and look at it, he certainly has some pop. So no one's saying they're going to replace Bryce Harper when he's in his prime. But if you look at some of the players they are cobbling together, they do have some guys with power. And they also have guys who are all around you know, good hitters. And that's really what they're going to have to become as a lineup if they're going to, you know, kind of improve without Bryce Harper. They're going to have to become more athletic, uh, more defensively sound, you know, and just a better offensive approach. And Dozier, by all accounts, kind of fits that mold. Last year kind of was an outlier. If you look at his season's past, he's always been a guy who has that threat to go deep, but it has kind of given you those veteran at-bats. And he's not very far removed from winning a gold glove. I think it was 2017, maybe, um, that he won a gold glove. So uh, certainly a good move for them. Um, not a whole lot of money committed to him. Not a whole lot of length, as you mentioned. So really a low-risk, high-reward move, um, it, for me anyway. Yeah, I think other than the Corbin signing, which was obviously filling their biggest need, I think this was my favorite signing because of a couple of things you mentioned. You mentioned good clubhouse guy, he was a leader on that Twins team that went to the wildcard game and adding the power. Like you said, that he's not going to replace Harper's power if Harper does indeed leave. It's going to be piecing it together from multiple guys. And getting the power that Doja had is going to make up a lot for what we saw out of Kendrick and Defoe, who kind of manned second base for most of the part, most of the time last year. Right, exactly. And like I said earlier, pushes those guys to the bench. And maybe you trade one of those guys. Maybe you look at you know, the trade deadline, maybe one of them's doing well. Um, maybe you package one of them with a prospect and try to get something back. Um, certainly you can look at it. But, you know, Defoe was a disappointment. Um, offensively, his approach to the organization, um, kind of a guy who went out there and was looking to hit home runs. And I think you have to kind of establish yourself more if you're going to go up with that approach. And he's a guy who had that opportunity. The door was wide open uh, and really didn't run with it. And it kind of forced them to go out and make another move, and I agree with you. I think the Dozier move is a big deal. And, again, it's not a headline. It's not as big as Corbin. um, But it's something that's going to make them better, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking to hit that 90-win mark and then see where they go from there. Yeah. And funny you should mention uh, what they do with Kendrick and Defoe. We had one of our listener questions from Ross Schimberg. I moved it up here, given it was quite apt to what we were talking about. And he was saying, what does it mean for Kendrick and Defoe? And I think, 
you've hit the nail on the head. Keeping Kendrick around as kind of that veteran bench bat is is ideal for the Nationals. Maybe they do look to deal him if, I don't know, they, they get to spring and he's not healing as they'd hoped and they send him off somewhere else. But Defoe, to me, is an interesting one because I think he's still got an option left on his contract. So it'll be interesting to see. Do you think they would trade him or do you think they would stash him at AAA or AA as kind of a emergency given that weird geographical issue with Fresno now? Yeah, that which adds an interesting wrinkle, right? Can't really stash guys at Fresno and have them come up quickly. Um, no, I think they would hopefully try to trade him because, as we mentioned, with Kai Bloom being kind of close, if you get to the trade deadline, Kai Bloom's tearing it up. You know Dozier's going to be done in a few months. And what kind of value um, does Defoe have? Does, does he does he have any value? Is he doing well? Um, you know, maybe he benefits from a change of scenery. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, at all if they kind of look to deal him and Kendrick kind of the same thing right like you know his stock's low right now he's coming off the Achilles we don't even know if he's going to be ready for spring training I mean February was the big month he said um, to kind of see if he was ready if if he'd be ready to go but say he does get a late jump and then he starts hitting uh, that veteran presence that clubhouse presence maybe he's a July trade maybe he's an August you know waiver wire type of deal for a contender that just wants him and his, like, stage veteran presence. So, certainly, you look at two of those guys now, and they're not expendable, um, but they're in a little bit more of a precarious situation than they were before they got Dozier. Yeah, I don't think they're in any rush to be forced to deal them. They can wait for the right package because they've each got their own value in different ways. Like we said, Kendrick having that veteran bench back, Defoe having that versatility that we've seen before on, on defense. So, yeah, it'll be interesting maybe again if if someone's shortstop goes down injured in spring training maybe someone makes a desperation play for Defoe who knows right exactly I agree um I think they're kind of waiting around for that kind of a scenario yeah and we've made it 15 minutes but we do have to talk about what's coming next for the Nationals and that starts with uh Bryce Harper we <laughs> now <Aww. laughs> I'm pretty impressed it took 15 minutes though but um, That's good. <laughs> there's been conflicting reports about kind of around the Nationals level of interest. He met with the Phillies almost two weeks ago, back on Saturday the 12th. And now it's getting to February where obviously his market almost certainly isn't where he thought it would be um, when he turned out that huge reported offer. So what do you make of where his market stands at the moment? Are the Nationals still in play, do you think? I think they're still in play. Um Honestly, I think based on their history in making these kind of late moves and signing guys, and I think based on the good relationship between Boris and the learners, that you just can't rule them out. You really can't. I think Harper's market is dwindling by the day. You know, you look at the Dodgers, they're probably a team that's out now. Uh, the Yankees keep swearing that, you know, they're not interested in Harper, and they've gone out and, and kind of made moves that suggest that they don't really need Harper or Machado. And so then you wonder who's got a big payroll and would be willing to take him on. Well, certainly the Nationals have got to be one of the two or three teams still standing in this sweepstakes, if we can even call it that. Um, Them and the Phillies, that's it for me. I'd be shocked if he goes somewhere else at this point in time. I think he stays in the NL East. I I don't have a feel for which team it is, but um, hopefully it gets done soon because I'm going on vacation next week, and I can't believe it's February and I have to worry about a Bryce Harper signing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've um I haven't missed one just yet, but 
you know there's going to be there's going to be something huge when I'm like on a bus back home or something yep it's the law of like being a beat reporter it's just always how it goes you're like oh I can't go away in December or January something might happen with Harper but by February I'll be fine <laughs> no we were not fine um it's crazy it's crazy it's it's scary certainly the Nationals are one of the teams kind of exempt from all of this but you look around baseball and you know, it just seems like, you know, teams just don't want to commit that kind of money and they don't want to commit those, you know, those salaries. And quite honestly, I think if you were to anonymously poll the Nationals, I think you'd be pretty surprised with how many people just think that Harper is not worth that kind of money and that kind of commitment. Uh, it just very rarely ends up in favor of the team. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I think you had a you had an interesting uh, metaphor, the way you put it in your Q&A about it's going to come yeah. down to when someone finally steps up to the plate and offers him a contract. Scott Boris is going to hit the learners with the you up text at two o'clock in the morning. Totally. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's just how they work. It seems to be how that op- that relationship operates, you know, and, you know, is Ted Lerner going to say, yeah, we're in, we're never mind. Like, you know, uh, we're we're still here. We're still interested. It's like that that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend uh, that, you know, you think it's over, but it's not really over until they sign with someone else, until they're actually with someone else, you know, kind of in that gray territory. That's why you can't eliminate them. You know, Scott Forrest is a, is a good agent, um, and there's a reason why. He's not just going to take the Phillies' first offer. You know, he's going to try and leverage it as best he can. It just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of leverage right now. Um, and if I'm Boris and Harper, uh, the Nats have got to be – kind of one of the only teams that are that are circling around so yeah I, I think that's probably what's going to end up happening regardless of if he if he stays or or if he goes just because the nationals are in and, until he signs somewhere else I, I don't believe it um, until he is wearing another team's uniform you know that what he's done for the city what he's done for the franchise um you know, certainly some people in the organization, I think, were a, a little hurt that he didn't take that initial offer. Um, but it, it wasn't an, it really in the end. All that matters is what the Lerner family thinks. Uh, if they want him, they're going to go out and get him. Yeah, I don't think there's any way you could rule out Scott Boris ringing up Ted, Ted Lerner, and saying, right, we've got this on the table. Do you want to match it? And you can't rule out Ted saying no to that. Like, uh, unless it's something astronomical. And I think especially when it's the Phillies as well, if it was somewhere right. like the Dodgers or the Cubs or somewhere not in the NL East, then maybe he might be more reluctant to say yes, perhaps. Right. I agree. I think that's what's going to make it you know, even more intriguing is, well, do you want to place this guy you know, all year pretty much? Uh, do you want to deal with this for the next 10 years? Um, I would be I, I would be curious to see what he ends up getting. I don't think him or, or Machado are going to come near that that ten year kind of deal. Honestly, as we get later to the winter, I wonder would it behoove them to sign like a five year, thirty million a year type of deal, and then maybe you know by that time, you know maybe free agency's better. I don't know. Maybe the the union and, and the league have worked together to kind of solve this because. Where it stands right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be fixed by next year. It doesn't look like it's going to be fixed anytime soon. Yeah, I think the CBA is in three years, if I'm right. Yeah, yep, three years. Yeah, so perhaps they, I don't know, maybe they could lower their asking price for that 10-year deal but make sure they've got opt-outs around the CBA so they can have a bit of flexibility there with the long-term security. We At this point, we don't know. Everyone was expecting him 
right, he's probably going to get 10 years north of 300 million. We don't know where, but it is going to be there. And now no one knows. Right. Exactly. So it's fascinating to watch. It truly is. Hmm. So I'm interested to see, because from when I've been reading your pieces, I feel like you're on the side that feels that they shouldn't bring him back. Yes, I am on that side. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I just, well, again, watching him from afar, I haven't covered him day to day. I, 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 I am not well versed in what he's like in the clubhouse or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen you know anything firsthand. And, um, I just think with the moves that they've made, they're a good team. With the money Harper's going to cost them that's going to handicap them in the future, I'd rather you just sign Rendon to an extension and be done with it. I think – I don't think it's a must. I really don't. Um, I, I, I think – you know, he certainly has that superstar flair, and he brings something. But, I, I again, I, I, I wouldn't sign him. Um, I wouldn't. I don't think it's worth the money and the years. Um, you take his MVP season out, it's very average. Um, to me, I know he's a special talent. He's very young. Um, but I wouldn't sign him. I, I don't think any player is worth that kind of money and that kind of commitment. Yeah, it's always interesting to get an outsider's perspective because especially when you're a fan of the team or even covering the team and kind of you get attached and you have a different mindset. So it's always interesting to get kind of the outside perspective to make sure that you're actually staying grounded on the subject. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think, I don't know, it, it probably splits baseball fans uh, as a whole as well. Yeah, and I think the longer this drags on, the more you have to, you know, wonder because it's not just the nationals who are like eh, maybe he's not worth it it's everyone in baseball um and quite honestly and, and i'm sure i'll get skewered for this but uh you take away the dumb comments that manny machado made in the postseason and manny stocks probably a little higher than harper's i think manny costs himself a lot of money and potentially a contract because if you can convince manny machado to play third base where he's a game changer i think he's you know, more worth that kind of a contract than Harper is. I mean, but Manny was a league average to below average shortstop. You know, there were pitchers who people on the Orioles who were not fans of him playing shortstop. I don't know if he lost focus. I don't know if he just doesn't have the range. Um, but when you look at him at third base, you know, when you look at Harper defensively, you know, obviously he played out of position, but those defensive metrics were terrible on him. And even when you do move him back to the corner, he's an okay outfielder. Manny Machado is a complete game changer at third base. So whether he's hitting or not hitting, he's going to do something to help you win. So, again, though, Manny made dumb comments. He cost himself money. He wants to play shortstop. I get all that. I'm saying in a perfect world, if you can convince Manny Machado to play third base, I think logistically he's worth more money value-wise than a Bryce Harper is. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm getting hung on the state with you there, but uh, that's yeah. probably a, that's probably, yeah, a whole nother po- probably a whole other podcast that we could go probably. into there. But, <laughs> uh, let's move on, move on to the Nationals' uh, actual third baseman. We, uh, you touched on it before. There's a possible Anthony Rendon extension looming soon. Um, your colleague, Ken Rosenthal, reported that he's, uh, he's after Altuve S. Money, who signed a seven-year, $163.5 million deal I think it was two off seasons ago now. Um, it was interesting because the Nats and Rendon settled at 18.8 million for his final year of arbitration, which probably means that a long-term extension isn't necessarily close. Is that kind of the sense you're getting as well? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, if they didn't sign him, yeah, they they did what they had to do to avoid a hearing. Um, so yes, it means it's not close. It doesn't mean it's not going to get done. Um, but certainly they've made some offers and the two sides just couldn't agree. So this is better than going to a hearing because those can often be contentious and kind of basically it's the team saying this is why this guy's worth nothing. So if you're trying to extend him, you really want to avoid the arbitration hearing at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting when we, when that, um, that report from Ken came out, there were several Nats fans rushing with their pens ready to, give it to him to sign that deal. And I think it was around 23 million annual average. What do you make of that, that deal compared to Rendon's value? Do you think it would be good value? Well, with the Altuve deal, he was still under team control for several years, correct? I think um, he had one or two more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was two. So they bought out some of his, you know, so they bought out some of his years and, and certainly they look at Altuve I mean, let's talk about a, a rising star, right, on the big stage, the World Series and such, um, kind of the, the, the heartbeat of that Astros team. But um, I, I think, you know, that's a little high. But if you're going to get into it and you're the Nationals and you're like, listen, we're not going to sign Bryce Harper, I think, fine, you want to overpay slightly for Rendon. I mean, this guy's underrated. He doesn't like being in the spotlight. He should be a much bigger deal than he is. Um, you know, I didn't know how good he was until I kind of started digging into the numbers. And, and you look at him, and he, he's very unassuming. He just wants to play baseball. Um, he's not a guy you're going to have to worry about getting getting into headlines or, you know, being at clubs. I mean, he, he's very much a lay-low, let's go to the ballpark, let's work hard, then let's go home type of guy. So from that standpoint, uh, I think you look at it as a very team-friendly kind of contract where he's not going to embarrass you by any means. Uh, certainly – I think if you do get that deal done, it kind of changes the complexion of how this team looks. Uh, you don't have to worry about maybe you move Kai Bloom over to third base if you don't sign him. And, you know, you've got Luis Garcia. You've got, you've got some other guys who you're kind of wondering how everything's going to shake out. Uh, but I think if you're looking at overpaying a guy, I'd rather pay Rendon than Harper. Um, just looking at them from a production standpoint, from what they bring, uh, I think if you look at, the money, the Altuve deal is probably a little bit high, um, but certainly the Nationals have been apt to spend before. I think this is something that still gets done. Um, people keep asking if it impacts Harper or if that's called the holdup. Well, they both have Scott Boris as their agent. So, you know, certainly to some extent there's a little bit of a holdup. I think once Harper signs somewhere and if it's not the Nationals, then you may see that move quicker. Um, but as long as that big fish is out there, it, I think it's just going to be tough to commit big long-term money to anyone else at this juncture even though they've tried i think if, if they can they will but honestly i'd be surprised if something gets announced before harper signs yeah i absolutely agree it even though they can still sign both obviously if they sign harper they're going over the luxury tax anyway so worrying about needing the money to get a rendon extension isn't done it's just nice to kind of have it planned out for the future years rather than they can't, if they sign Harper, they can't extend Rendon. And yeah, it's probably going to come after that. And like you say, if they do lose Harper, perhaps they become a bit, a bit more motivated to get it done quickly because the one thing the Nationals can't afford to do is lose both. I agree. I agree. And that's why I think, you know, you wait it out. You let Harper sign elsewhere if that's what's going to happen. Um, you extend Rendon. And then you still have a little bit more financial flexibility, right? Because Rendon's not trying to get the kind of deal that Harper's getting. Um, but certainly, 
if you if you end up with Harper, that does change what you can do with Rendon. Maybe you do extend him um, still, but I, again, then you have literally no more payroll. I, I don't know how you operate a team for the next some odd years with both of those guys. Um, I know they've said that Harper operates separately, but in the end, it's not monopoly money. Uh, you're still going to have to pay, and I know the learners have a ton of money, uh, but you look at this luxury tax situation, uh, and you look at some of the penalties that they could face, and it, it would be a really surprising world to me if you lock up Rendon and you sign Harper to a, some kind of historic deal. I, I just don't see how that happens with the money already on the book. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting when the numbers came out. You actually thought, oh, someone's actually asked for a, a reasonable number compared to what we've seen from Harper the last few years demanding like 400, <laughs> 500. But, uh, so exactly. one of the... One of the last needs on the Nats do list is a little bit more pitching depth. I think you touched on it right at the top where we were talking about kind of some of that starting pitching depth where there isn't that much in the minors. Uh, At the moment, they've got about 11 million-ish in breathing room under the luxury tax threshold, but they do kind of need that for if they go out and make a big uh, mid-season trade acquisition and perhaps accounting for some of the incentives on some of the contracts. So it's not something where they can go out and get Another big name, they're going to have to kind of find some of these minor league deals or someone cheap. Perhaps the free agency or slow free agency plays in their hands a little bit in, in that regard. Yeah, I think so. And someone today in Q&A asked me about Keuchel. And, like, no, they're not going to get Keuchel. They, they spent their big money on Corbin and they added Sanchez. So I don't expect them to add a, a name per se, but they're going to see, like, some non-roster invitees uh, that come to camp. Some guys to kind of challenge Ross because right now it looks like his spot to lose for that fifth spot. So I think they're going to go out and they're going to get some depth. And people are like, well, what about this guy or that guy? And it's like, no, it's not going to be someone that anyone is really excited about, right? It's going to be a guy who can swing back and forth between AAA and the majors if they need a spot start or if something goes wrong. Um, So certainly they're not going to go out and sign a a Dallas Keuchel. But I do believe that they probably between now and the end of spring training – are going to get some of these remaining free agents. I mean, there's what well over 100 guys still out there. Um, the Nationals are going to be able to kind of use that little bit of payroll that they have left and, and add a few guys that, hey, if they work out, great. If they don't, not a big deal to cut bait either. Yeah, I think it. one of the common myths at the moment is, right, if we don't sign Harper, we can use that money elsewhere on the team. But that's where the Harper is separate comes into it, that if they do bring him back, they're going to bring it, bring him back as kind of a one-off and say, right, he's Bryce Harper. We're going to go over the luxury tax for him. They're not going to go over the luxury tax for Dallas Keuchel, say. Right, exactly. And, like, they've already done something similar where they added Vidal Nuno, right, a, a potential lefty reliever uh, on a minor league deal. If he impresses, great. If he doesn't, oh, well. Um, so that that's kind of the case. They'll probably add a few more lefty reliever types and a few more starting pitching types. But, yeah, like you said, they – Harper is a very special case. They would be willing to go over that threshold for. That doesn't mean that they're that they're going to spend that thirty million dollars on this year's team. No, they, they've already spent a significant amount of money. Um, the Harper thing, again, in this scenario, is totally separate. Yeah, I think it, it's one of the areas that I think Mike Rizzo has thrived recently. He's gotten like just as recently as last season. I mean, Jeremy Hellickson and Justin Miller kind of filling in those the kind of names do you have any yeah. any preference any anyone coming over from the Orioles that you've covered the last few years so you have a friendly face in the clubhouse 
<laughs> oh God, I don't think you out anyone who was on the Orioles last year. <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> I was teasing Zach Britton for a while. I was like, Hey, don't you want to come to the Nationals uh, so I can have a friend? <laughs> and uh, obviously that does not happen. But uh, yeah, I don't know anyone in the clubhouse, which is weird. I know Matt Weeders, but he's not on the team anymore. Um, I did call him when I got the job, and he he was he was helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, I I would like for them to sign someone I know. So. If anyone is listening to this, like Mike Rizzo or someone who does player procurement, uh, please, somebody who's been with the Orioles over the last 10 years, that would be good. Uh, it's hard to be in baseball for a decade and not know someone in an organization, but somehow I've managed to do it here with the Nationals. Yeah, preferably the first half of those uh, those few years when the Orioles were good. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that 12 to uh, 14 or 15 when they had that nice little run. They were terrible in 10. But uh, yeah, so somewhere in that little in that little juncture would be great. Or someone in uh, from Tampa Bay in '08 or New York in '09. We're not super picky, just somebody who knows me <laughs> and likes me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's kind of interesting that you you've come over from the O's. Uh, you were there, I think you were at MLB.com covering the O's for eight years, and then like you said, two years before. Uh, in Tampa Bay, New York, I believe. You've kind of teased it in your obligatory I'm joining the Athletic Post, but uh, give our listeners a, a little taste of what you've uh, been through through the first 10 years of covering baseball. Yeah, so I basically got my start out of college with Tampa. I was a associate reporter uh, the year that the Rays in 08 went all the way to the World Series. So, uh, you know, I was fresh out of college, and the best teams to cover as a reporter are the teams that win that weren't supposed to win. Because uh, obviously there's a lot of expectations on teams that are supposed to win. So even when they win, there can be a lot of pressure. Um, but the teams that aren't supposed to win, the underdogs, they're great. Um, so every day I was like, this is the best job ever, right? And then in 09, I spent some time I'm from Connecticut. So MLB was like, well, you can you can stay on and help out. So I did, you know, some, some of the World Series stuff because the Yankees were in the World Series that year. And I was like, oh, so I, I was just around a lot of winning teams. I finally get the Orioles beat in 2010. It's my first, like, full time. I am the person, right? And they're horrible. They're like, they <laughs> hired, they go through three managers. The, the GM leaves. Andy McPhail leaves at the end of the year. And I'm like, whoa, like, this, this job is not as fun as I thought. Nope. And people are angry uh, after the games. People are yelling at me. People are kicking it out on me. Like, it was the total opposite end of the spectrum. Um, but you go through it and you realize that, like, okay, you covered both extremes and, you know, really that's the best case scenario for a reporter. You don't want an average team because that average tends to be pretty boring, right? Um, but it was just such a stark difference. And it really kind of forced me, when you're winning, it's so easy to write stories. Everyone's in a good mood. They want to talk to you. Um, teams that are losing, teams that are really bad, like the Orioles this past year, uh, really kind of test your mettle to, one, present the game in an interesting way, and to, to two, um, give fans some kind of hope or something interesting or insightful to read rather than, hey, this team sucks when they lost again. So um, it's been in, in between, of course, the Orioles had some really great years. Um, they won the AL East in 2014. They ran away with it. 2012, they were kind of like the Rays and that they came out of nowhere and, and, you know, snapped all those losing seasons and ended up winning the wild card. But um, there's been some exciting stuff. And, I've never covered, though, a team that's gone out and made these big moves. The Orioles have always been slow, small budget. Um, so it's interesting. I took the Nationals beat 
And then I think the fan fest, it was like a week before fan fest. And all of a sudden they add, they add a uh, Jan Gomes and they had Patrick Corbin. Um, you know, they had the kind of that whirlwind was starting and I was like, holy smokes, I'm not in Baltimore anymore. You know, all of a sudden they're making all these moves and I'm like, whoa, whoa, I don't know anyone. How am I supposed to like even write anything? Um, so it was definitely interesting. Um, it's been really fun. I'm really looking forward to going to spring training because I kind of feel like sometimes I'm sitting in a dark room alone being asked to cover a team that you don't know anyone. You don't really have too many contacts. Um, like I mentioned, I don't really know many of the players. And all of a sudden, it's the off season, so you don't really see anyone, uh, and you're kind of being tasked with writing, you know, this expert stuff or different stuff at the athletics, um, and, it, and that kind of makes it a doubly challenging. So going down to spring training early, I'm really excited, one, to be warm, and two, to get going on some of these different stories and to actually be able to contribute with some depth to my coverage. So that was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, uh, good job you didn't come last season when they they barely did anything. You've got this full off season where they made like nine different signings, so it's uh, it's not been quiet. <laughs> no, it's not. And every other team, you know, it's you know the story is oh nothing's getting done in baseball, and it's like well put a little asterisk there because the Nationals, really the NL East outside of Miami, has probably been the most active division. I would I would think right. The Mets have made a bunch of moves. The Phillies have done some things. You know, the, the Braves, not as active, but they've still made some, some considerable moves. Um, I think outside of Miami, I, I haven't counted, but I think if you went through transaction-wise, well, Seattle's obviously made a million transactions, but that's not really to get better. Um, I think if you look at it, the NL East has got to be the one division that, like, people are trying to win now. A lot of people are trying to win now, right? Yeah, it's definitely um, good to see. They could probably uh, – the NL East can probably – account for like half of all of baseball's transactions this offseason. Yeah, <laughs> really. Because like the AL East, you just have the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? Because, the you know, the Orioles, Toronto, I guess Tampa Bay to some extent is trying to win now. I mean, they somehow won 90 games and they were accused of tanking last year. Uh, but yeah, the NL East, it, I'm really fascinated to see how this whole division uh, unfolds. I mean, one, it's new teams. It's a lot of cases, new cities for me that I haven't been in in, in quite some time. Um, and two, it just looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. It looks like there's some really good storylines and some really good teams. Mm. So what's one thing that you're looking forward to on the field and one thing you're looking forward to off the field on the new beat? Huh. So let me think. One thing on the field, one thing off the field. On the field, I'm really excited to watch Max Scherzer pitch up close every fifth day. Um, I think you people take it for granted, I think, when you have a legitimate horse like that. I've never covered really a true ace ace. Um, Orioles really never had one uh, on a day to day basis. And just in my limited dealings with Scherzer, I think I've met him once, twice. Uh, and listening to him talk, he's incredibly intelligent and incredibly cerebral, really gets it. So I'm really excited to watch him because I know how special it is. I mean, the guy could throw a no hitter every time he takes him out. Uh, so to me, being able to watch that, I think will be really cool. Um, so that's probably on the field what I'm looking forward to the most. Off the field, the whole Navy Yard area is awesome. Like, mm. um, basically, like, I remember going there with the Orioles, and it was like, make sure you lock your car because it was like Sketchville. <laughs> and over the years, it's really, like, up and coming. And it wasn't until the All-Star game I covered this year where, like, I spent much more time there than I normally would. Normally, I would just drive from, from my house in Baltimore, you know, go to the game and drive home. 
But the All-Star game, I got up early and walked around, and um, I was like, this is a really cool area. Um, of course, spent too much money. There's a bunch of really good restaurants. There's like a filled coffee shop right there. So I'm really excited to kind of check out that area because it's, it's so new and upcoming. And I'm also excited that we're a lot closer to D.C. because I'm a huge NHL fan. And it was such a pain in the ass to try to go to an NHL game all the way in Baltimore. So now, like, the commute's cut in half. We're, like, a half an hour outside of the, outside of the city. So I'm excited to, to take in some more NHL games as well. Yeah, hopefully now you've moved into the city, the Caps will start playing better. But, uh, again, <laughs> again, that's a, that's a whole other podcast. Um, but, we can definitely talk NHL. Call me anytime. <laughs> uh, so just to wrap up the podcast, we've got a few listener questions. Uh, Mike Wilford asked, what are the Nationals' long-term plans for Michael Taylor? And he seems like a guy, even if Harper comes back, who is good to have around as like a perfect prototype fourth outfielder type who can hit you home runs, steal you some bases, play gold glove defense, but he hasn't quite got that batting eye to be a regular out there. Right, exactly. He's kind of, if they get Harper, he's kind of that late-game replacement, right, the defensive replacement, the guy who, who maybe comes in late as, as a pinch runner or something like that. I think he's got value. Um, I don't I, – obviously, a lot of that changes, right, um, if they do get a guy like Harper. Uh, but I, I don't think that that would immediately mean that they would trade him. Um, certainly, they would look around, and it would definitely make that picture a little more crowded. Uh, but I think he's got tools, and I think he kind of fits, at least on paper right now, with what this team is trying to do. They keep saying they want to get more defensive, they want to be more athletic, they want to do the little things to win. Uh, and from from what I've seen from him, he, he does those little things right. He does those things that don't necessarily show up in the box score at the end of the night. Yeah, and um, I think it it makes sense to keep him. He's not... So say if they bring Harper back, it makes more sense to trade Eaton because he's got yeah. more value. Um, I think his contract also jumps up a bit with some of the player options. So maybe if you're trying to get rid of a bit of salary, it makes more sense to get rid of Eaton, even though he is obviously the better player. Taylor fits that fourth outfield mold better. Yeah, I think he'd be a better bench guy. And then also, because he makes more money, you're, I mean, again, it, it's probably crumbs at this point, right, because you're taking on a Harper salary. But mm-hmm. – uh, you do trade the better guy. You do try to get some of that that money off the books as best as you can. So yeah, I I would agree. I think he probably would be the guy who got pushed out a little bit more. Again, if they were to sign Bryce Harper. Uh, one of the other questions we got, we're touching it before, but Leah Burnett asked, uh, is it possible that Mike Rizzo adds another lefty reliever and starting pitcher? And I think again, we we talked about it before. It's either going to come from the really bargain basement major league signing, so for like one or two million, that makes it pretty inconsequential, or it's going to be someone like Nuno or Henderson Alvarez, that sort of type coming through from a minor league deal with a invite to spring training. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, again, and that's a product of kind of the NAP farm system, right? They, they've kind of dug into that farm system and dipped into it a few too many times. And while they do have, kind of the, you know, the, out, the outfield and infield prospects that we've all heard about, you know, with Robles. I'm surprised they didn't talk about Robles at all, um, actually. But uh, you look at some of those guys, and they don't really have these guys in AAA that you're like, oh, wait till this guy comes. He's going to force his way up. So I do think they sign, you know, those, those lower-tiered free agents um, for, the, for the, you know, basically depth signings, just-in-case signings. Um, that's something that I'm sure is probably on their, on their list now. 
And they're in a real enviable spot in that there's a lot of guys fighting for not very many jobs. So they could get some pretty team-favorable contracts um, that maybe they wouldn't be able to get on some of these other guys, these six-year free agents and some of the other guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that pretty much wraps up. I want to say thanks to Brittany for joining us on the podcast. And where can our listeners find you? You can find me uh, at theathletic.com slash nationals. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. It's Britt underscore Giroli, which is a really tricky last name, I know. Um, but hopefully you are listening and you already know of me. But if not, my last name is uh, G-H-I-R-O-L-I. Um, let, me, let me know your questions. Let me know how you think this all went. I am uh, pretty in, engaged and uh pretty responsive on social media yeah that was one of the things i was going to say can definitely uh check in with you you always respond and uh especially some of the things that the athletic are doing where they've got some of these live q and a's that i think are really good as well yeah yeah those have been fun to do it's nice to kind of see what what uh transpires what people are asking what uh what people want to know about outside of bryce harper we know that's a huge story but Actually, there's a lot of other questions today and a lot of, a lot of smart questions. So it's been pretty cool. The fan base has been great so far. Yeah, and hopefully you won't have to do the next one at Panera Bread. Yeah, <laughs> my Wi-Fi <laughs> is set up tomorrow. It's coming tomorrow. <laughs> uh, remember to check out some of our content this week. I took a look at why the Nationals should bring back Harper, even if they don't necessarily need him. And Toby identified four players who could be X-Factors for the team in 2019. Remember to follow us on Twitter at District on Deck. Give us a like on Facebook, District on Deck. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spreaker, where you can get episodes automatically downloaded for you. We hope to record again just before the next break camp down in West Palm Beach. I think it's about a couple of weeks away now. So we'll see you then. 